0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan,
1: and me, Tegan Taylor.
0: Today, what fascinating new findings about the 400 years of the Black Death can teach us about COVID? The extraordinary story of the pathology tech company Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, who's just gone on trial in the United States for allegedly defrauding investors, including Rupert Murdoch, of $700 million, not to mention harming patients.
1: We're coming into tick season, which means you could be part of a study looking for tick-related diseases. And at the beginning of the COVID vaccine rollout, the federal government gave Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people priority access to vaccination. They recognised that existing health inequities meant they were at high risk of serious disease if they caught COVID but the outbreak in regional New South Wales is highlighting the comparatively low vaccination rates among Indigenous peoples, and hundreds of First Nations people are now infected. So how has it come to be that more than a year and a half into this pandemic and six months into the vaccine rollout so few Indigenous people are vaccinated? And what's the way forward here? Tani Jash is a Ewan and Camillaro woman and a health reporter here in the ABC Science team, and she's been looking into just this. Welcome, Tani. Hi, Tegan. So, as we said, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were some of the were in some of the earliest phases of the vaccine rollout. They've had access for longer than many other groups in Australia. So, why are why are we seeing some big big gaps in vaccination rates? Is it problems with access, or
2: hesitancy, or both? I think it's a combination of both, and it's really important to note that various parts of the country, are, I guess, com- trying to combat. Um, these issues and it affects different communities in different ways. So when we're talking about the hesitancy, a lot of that has derived from the the way that the rollout commenced. And um, it was great that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were prioritised um, during the first phase, but that's also when we were hearing some side effects around AstraZeneca, which made people feel a little bit reluctant, I guess, to get the vaccine. Um, and then when we go to, uh, some other areas, if we come down to the, um, eastern side of the country and look at places like New South Wales, access was a really big problem for a lot of communities, um, not just in Sydney, but also in regional and remote parts of the state as well.
1: Once the current wave kicked off.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, you know, you um if we look at if we talk to some Aboriginal people that are living in sydney um you'll you'll often hear that access was um uh, you know, a big problem um, for them right from the get go, even though the federal government had prioritised Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, when it came to making a booking, there was no availability, or oftentimes people had to travel really far distances just to get a vaccine, Often, sometimes often putting themselves at risk of getting the virus by travelling into hotspot locations.
1: Right, and you've talked to someone about their personal experience of this.
2: Yeah, that's right. So when I was looking into um, the vaccination rates, I came across an Aboriginal mother um, who lives in a Sydney hotspot and she shared a little bit about what her experience was like trying to get a booking in the system.
3: In early June, I couldn't find
1: anywhere to actually book online. It was that hard by the time I made my mind up. There was nowhere in the booking thing to say that you're Indigenous. Um, So I think the idea of us, been able to be vaccinated there must have dropped off somewhere along the line. So that was an Aboriginal mother based in Sydney who you spoke to, Tani. We keep hearing that restrictions are going to start easing at 70 to 80% of vaccination of people 16 plus, which a lot of us are really looking forward to. But if Indigenous people are seeing lower vaccination rates in, and it's a community that we know is at higher risk of severe disease, what's the feeling about uh, what the risks are here?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think for many Aboriginal people, hearing that the borders are going to open at seventy to eighty percent is actually really um, nerve. It makes us really nervous because you know there's already underlying health issues that a lot of Aboriginal people um, face, but it also amplifi- amplifies the existing problems um, or issues within our community. Um, you know, such as uh, the strain on the uh, health system at the moment, also overcrowding within houses. And so health experts are really calling or advocating to the government to really look at this target and revise it and aim for about a 90 to 95% vaccination rates for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
1: So you spoke to the chairperson of the Aboriginal Health Council of Western Australia, Vicky O'Donnell, about just this.
2: The concern that we have is that
4: if you've still got you know, even 20% not vaccinated of our mob, that 20% is going to end up in hospital. And I don't think the hospitals are going to cope much as i like to think they are. And so that's, that's Vic- going to be the tragedy for us across Australia.
1: So that's Vicky O'Donnell from the Aboriginal Health Council of Western Australia. So, I mean, we've talked about the problem. Let's talk about solutions. What are community leaders and experts trying to do to bridge this vaccine gap?
2: I think that's a really um, important part of this conversation because there's a lot of great work being done by Aboriginal community controlled health organisations across the country. And when I spoke to Vicky uh, earlier, um, this uh, sorry, last week, she shared this really great campaign that was launched over the weekend to encourage Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to get vaccinated and the importance around this and the campaign kicked it off across um, all states and territories and it was a really great campaign that's going um, on on TV um, but we also have some great work on the ground um, by service providers um, actually going into community so whether that's door knocking, um, We've seen this with um, the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress, where they're going out to community and actually um, providing that uh, vaccine option to get it done at home. There's also various pop up pop up clinics and drives happening in places where we feel safe and comfortable, and also trust, you know, have trusted experts there. And Vicky also shared that you know there was one vaccination drive in particular that they did where they. Uh, administered 80% of um, the first doses to Aboriginal people in that area. So it's really effective and it's really important.
1: Here's hoping those targeted campaigns have the desired effect. Tani, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Tegan. Tani
1: Jash is a UN Camilleroy woman and a health reporter in our ABC Science Unit. This is RN's Health Report.
0: bad as COVID has been, there's no pandemic in history that's come close to the devastation of plague, at least in what's called the second plague pandemic, better known as the Black Death. It took off in the mid-14th century and within a few years it killed maybe 25 or 30 percent of Europe's population and then came in waves for 400 years. Plague is an infection of rodents which jumps to other animals and humans and kills from pneumonia and septicemia. Like all pandemics, plague was exquisitely tuned to environmental changes, international politics, warfare, disadvantage and the way humans lived. And there's a lot we can learn from it in the time of COVID. A research group in Norway has bust a few myths about the Black Death, such as the fabled role of rats, and in the last few days has published findings on why it came in waves, because it was thought that it just kept circulating in Europe, not according to this new research. And there may be lessons for COVID. Jo Stentet is Professor of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Oslo. Welcome to The Health Report. Thank you very much.
5: Very nice being here.
0: Just quickly, this idea that it was a a rat-borne disease, rats fleas to humans in this second pandemic, um, you've disproven that.
5: Well, uh, we have um, studied um, 13 uh, 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 medieval period uh, cities and asked what kind of model? What kind of model describes this uh, death uh, pattern uh, in the population? We compare the, the rodent uh, flea people and we uh, uh, compare that with uh, people flea people, and the latter model fits the data the best. So that's why we have, uh, have concluded that. And by the way, uh, rats were not so common in at least
0: Northern Europe at the time, so it can't really be guilty of this. So, in other words, the the, the transmission dynamics, as we all know from our COVID literacy, um, were such that it really couldn't have been rats to humans. It had to be human to human in some ways. Well... And- they, they they are using they are using a model from India during the third
5: pandemic uh, and it might have worked very well for India but it does not necessarily work for uh, the second uh, pandemic plague pandemic uh, that started as you said uh, with the Black Death
0: yeah. now um, and, we'll, and that's and that was l- lice from human to human as well as presumably pneumonic plague passing it just by coughing on somebody. Now, this, this plague, people don't realise, the Black Death lasted for 400 years, maybe even longer, before it died out. And, the, and people assumed that it was circulating amongst the animals of Europe. And you have also shown that this is not the case.
5: Yeah, um, most of the people in the field, they uh, believe that it was uh, circulating around, that the bacterium was circulating around in uh, Europe, or uh, could uh, stay, hang on in a reservoir, uh, in borough, where rodents, flee and the bacterium could uh, survive. That's indeed possible. However, we have compared uh, all available genomic data and sort of built up um, uh, which at which strain is related to which strain and where does it come from. If you only take um, genomic information, genetic information, you will conclude indeed that it must have been circulating around in Europe. However, if you include ecological, archaeological, historical information in the analysis, uh, it does point that to outside Europe, that it must have been circulating around outside Europe and then repeatedly coming into Europe. Uh, we actually we had a study back in uh, 2015
0: where we uh, was the first time we actually presented that hypothesis. And and the, and the environment's got something to do as well because there were environmental changes in Asia where you or Central Asia where you believe this came it's, from, um, exactly. Which encouraged exactly. if you have if you have a few uh, warm uh, and fairly
5: humid uh, years two, three, or four of them over a large area. the population will build up, the, the plague population, the bacterium population will build up in the wilderness. And then if over the same era, the population, the gerbil, the host rodent population, crashes over a huge area, then it spills over, the bacterium spills over to the human population. And then uh, several years later, it shows up in harbor cities in Europe. And it does so several times, actually. So that was the first time we really uh, assumed or concluded that this might have been the case, that it comes from outside Europe again and again.
0: So, so the people of the time would have been looking behind them for where it's coming from within Europe. But in fact, it was coming in through ports and border control exactly. was really exactly. the issue, which they didn't know. Exactly exactly it, it comes repeatedly into, into ports
5: and then spread very fast during uh, through europe and uh, the fleet to human human flee human flee uh, that explains why it can go so fast
0: and the um, so, so why did the pandemic disappear it just disappeared
5: well uh, that's Probably uh, linked to hygiene uh, and that they had quarantine uh, system. So that sort of blocked the import. Uh, the hygiene becomes very important, particularly at the end of the uh, third pandemic. Uh, it ended in Europe quite fast, whereas around Europe uh, it continued for quite a while.
0: I mean, the third pandemic. It is
5: most likely to do with the hygiene, which of course is exactly what we are experiencing today. Quarantine and hygiene. Hygiene, you know, stop circulation of the COVID nineteen.
0: What do you think? The coronavirus. Just briefly, what do you think are the main lessons from this for COVID, if any?
5: Well, you should pay attention to import from outside, uh, which is uh, which was important then, um, back in the medieval period, at least if our assumption is or our uh, theory is right. Uh, which is exactly what happened today. We, we should be very careful about border. We should have border control. Make sure uh, that people are not infected when they enter into the country. And if they are infected, uh, put them into quarantine. And, of course, uh, hygiene, uh, which we, uh, you know, we have antibac and all this kind of stuff uh, today everywhere.
0: Thanks. thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much another time we'll come back and talk about the third pandemic, which probably is still going right now. Neil Stentett is Professor of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Oslo.
1: And if you live in Australia, anywhere near bushland, which is most of us really, you've probably encountered a tick before. Most people who get bitten by one suffer little more than a swollen, itchy bite site for a day or two. But for a small number, what follows is a debilitating, often long-term illness similar to Lyme disease. It's not Lyme disease, these people are told. The ticks and their bacteria that cause that disease are only found in the Northern Hemisphere. But it's a small comfort to those people who are left trying to manage a chronic illness that isn't well understood. And for Brisbane man Dan Odlin, it's been three years since the tick bite, he says, turned his life upside down.
3: I was working in northwest Brisbane, you know, next to a horse arena. I was in a grass area and I've come in contact with a tick, which has traveled up into my hair on the back of my head. And it wasn't for some days that I found that tick. By that stage, it was quite large. I was having migraines and I was having like low heart pain. You know, it's changed my life forever. With the heart pain, it sort of started to ramp up and become more serious. So every time I tried to say, go return to work and do you know a normal day's work, started getting heart pain that was increasing. I just couldn't work. I presented to emergency, said, there's nothing wrong with you. You'll be fine. I didn't worry. I went home. And that night was, was terrible. I returned to hospital. We'd like a cardiologist to have a look at you. He just said, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I believe you've got pericarditis. You know, this is quite serious. Yeah, we want to admit you. So I had a lot of other issues as well. I, I couldn't quench my thirst. I was sweating from the hands and feet. I had light sensitivity. I had twitches all over my body, joint pain, muscle pain, uh, chronic fatigue, and I just felt awful. Nearly three years later, I'm still looking for a solution.
1: That was Dan Odlin, a Brisbane man who's had symptoms since a tick bite three years ago. In Australia, syndromes like Dan's have a name, Debilitating Symptom Complexes Attributed to Ticks or DISCAT. I didn't say it was a particularly snappy name. There are a couple of research groups trying to shed light on what is behind these symptoms, and one of them is led by Emeritus Professor Peter Irwin from Murdoch University, who I spoke to earlier.
4: Lyme disease, in its true sense, doesn't occur here in Australia. We don't have the ticks, for example, that are known to transmit Lyme disease overseas. And more importantly, some of the research that's been done studying ticks recently has led to that conclusion as well.
1: It's a bit of a contentious one, though, because we have people in Australia who are living with debilitating symptoms that they... Pretty sure came from a tick, and often feel like their experience isn't being seen as valid because people go, Well, we don't have Lyme disease in Australia, so there you go.
4: That's absolutely right. And there are certainly many people who are unwell and believe that that illness arises from tick bite. Lyme disease is a well known disease in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a very serious disease. But if you look at the prevalence of Borrelia in ticks in the northern hemisphere, it's really quite high. So, If that was the case here in Australia, then I believe we'd find it. Australia has a very unique evolutionary history. It's been separated from the rest of the world for about 46 million years, something like that. And the animals here and their ticks have evolved in relative isolation over these years. So the organisms that are within those ticks have also evolved and are different to the northern hemisphere ones.
1: What do we currently know and what are you hoping to shed light on with the research that you have underway?
4: What we currently know, Tegan, is that we've got quite a few different tick species here in Australia. Really only two of those bite people regularly. That's the eastern paralysis tick and the kangaroo tick. And there are others up to 22 have been reported to bite people. And these ticks are full of organisms. Their, their microbiome, the different types of bacteria and viruses, that are inside these ticks, and there's a large number of them. They're similar to, but different from their northern hemisphere cousins, if you like. So our research, we are looking people from the moment they get tick bite and doing clinical evaluations and psychometric profiling to better understand the physical and the psychological impacts of the sequelae, if you like, of tick bite.
1: Lyme disease is caused by a particular bacterium, as you said before, but you're looking at it could be a bacteria or it could be something else that's causing these symptoms in people in Australia.
4: That's right. There are a number of different possibilities and we're trying to explore all of these. One hypothesis is that it is associated with one or more infectious organisms. But there are other explanations for why people might become unwell that don't necessarily include infectious organisms. The tick saliva and what's injected into the human contains multiple different proteins, and these trigger immune responses in animals and in people. And so we're investigating the complex immunological responses that occur following tick bites. But in addition to that, we're interested to know what the relationship between the baseline psychological profile of people that get tick bites is and the development of particular symptoms after the tick bite. Because some people become ill after tick bite, obviously, and some don't.
1: What sort of reactions do you get from people with chronic illness when you tell them that psychological or psychometric testing is part of your research? Because I think for people who have struggled with illnesses where perhaps some of the messages that they've gotten is that they're maybe in their head, they might find that invalidating.
4: I completely understand that. The trouble is we just simply do not, know yet what makes people unwell after tick bite. There are certain similarities between DISCAT and ME, CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and other disorders of, of chronic illness like that. And I believe the only way that we're going to really provide evidence as to what is causing this is to keep an open mind and look at all aspects. I've spoken to many of these folk over the years. It's very distressing. They're seriously ill. We're trying to bring some science and some understanding to what causes this.
1: Peter Irwin is Professor of Veterinary Clinical Science at Murdoch University and leads the Troublesome Ticks Discat Research Project. The research group is looking for people within 72 hours of them being bitten by a tick. For more information, go to tickstudy.murdoch.edu.au.
0: Only a few years ago, technology being boasted by a U.S. biotech startup called Theranos was being heralded as a revolution in healthcare, founded by a then 19-year-old Stanford University dropout who claimed that with just a drop or two of blood, her device would be able to run hundreds of clinical tests cheaply and empower patients who would have more access to their health information. Hundreds of millions of dollars were raised by Elizabeth Holmes from high-profile investors such as Rupert Murdoch, and her board included two former Secretaries of State and two former Secretaries of Defence, names like George Schultz, Henry Kissinger and James Mattis. But in 2018, Theranos collapsed. The technology never worked, and alarmingly, patients were given incorrect results. Both its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, and her former partner are facing multiple fraud charges to which they've pleaded not guilty. Holmes' trial is now underway in the U.S. and will determine whether she conspired to defraud investors and others. If found guilty, she could face 20 years in jail. Phyllis Gardner is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and one of the experts Elizabeth Holmes first approached with her ideas. I spoke to Professor Gardner earlier.
6: Well, I was pretty well known in drug delivery. She wanted to do something that seemed, well, was completely impossible. She wanted to put a skin patch on. She didn't define whether or not needles would be involved, but of course she didn't think they would be because she said everybody's so afraid of needles. And she wanted to use nanotubes or microtubules to first sample fluid from the body and then deliver antibiotics. And I said, this is not going to work. I said it nicely. That, that's not going to work. <laughs> I said, first of all, where are you going to sample? I mean, the skin is quite impervious. And then what she wanted to do was deliver antibiotics after the infection was diagnosed. And I said to her, do you realize antibiotics are not potent? You cannot put them through microtubules or nanotubes. You know, when you go to the hospital and you're getting IV antibiotics, they hang a huge bag, right? You need to deliver a large quantity. So I said this to her, but she didn't really respond. And she just sort of looked straight through me and they left. And what she tried to commercialize was fundamentally different than what she was describing to me. Somehow somebody got through to her and said this, that's impossible. So then the story goes on. She starts a company. And that's where it began.
0: And were you ever, did you you ever asked to give an opinion on the single drop blood test? No. What was your impression of her?
6: My impression was she had a profound belief in her own intellect, far beyond what I think she should have. When she first came, she was not the person that you saw later on TED Talks. She changed her look, her style, and everything.
0: And her voice did managed, reportedly.
6: Oh, yes, it did. And I have a deep voice, but when I heard her next time, so 2003, then 2015, at the Harvard Medical School Board of Fellows, of which I'm on, and she was appointed, which is a whole other story. She said, hello, and I'm like, oh, my God. Where did that come from? But anyway, I mean, her method of getting influence was through older men and i said their brains just went south
0: (laughs) so i mean this has fallen apart the allegations are that they were using standard laboratory testing devices covering up they were covering up the fact that their technology didn't work they raised about 700 million dollars they had wellness centers they had contracts with very large companies to provide their employees all of it
6: was from my perspective it was all a sham my husband flew by the representative of Siemens, and he said, are you aware of Theranos? And she goes, oh, yes, we supply all their equipment. Oh, for God's sake.
0: And That's what she so was sick. saying was basically standard diagnostic equipment. Yes. So in other words, they were using it's Siemens devices equipment. to do their, yes. like any pathology lab would.
6: Yes. Also, I talked to the former head of the laboratory, a Harvard-trained pathologist who had quit. And of course, he was scared to death, he quit because he said, it's not
0: working. What do you think the wash-up is in terms of what's been said is that what this was, was enthusiasm, fake it until you make it, which is the typical...
6: Oh God, I, every time anyone says fake it till you make it, I about throw something through the wall. You do not fake it until you make it in medicine, on people's lives.
0: Did patients come to harm as a result of Theranos?
6: Yes. First of all, they invalidated tens of thousands of tests. There are many cases of false results. Do I know the full extent of the harm? Uh, No, but you know that there are people who got results such as high estrogen levels when they'd been normal after breast cancer? And we're terrified. Potassium level, for example, if it's too high or too low, you will have fatal arrhythmias. She had so many wrong. And then the, the thing she was cited for that caused her to be told she could not, as far as my memory goes, could not direct a lab anymore was blood clotting times. It's very narrow index that is therapeutic. If you go too low, you will have a stroke. And if you go too high, you can bleed to death and she was giving them wrong results. That is awful.
0: What has failed here? She got away with it. Do you think the system's strong enough to resist next time?
6: I think this system is strong. Let's talk about the regulators. FDA only approved one test on their device, Edison, if she did it on Edison, and it was for some infectious disease. And those are the easiest things to do. There's a huge wide margin as opposed to clotting time, etc. One test out of all those 240 that she claimed, none of them were approved. She lied and cheated on that one certification. It wasn't the regulators, nor was it Silicon Valley Venture Capital. They kicked her out of the office everywhere. The people who invested were what we call angel investors, high net worth investors, most of them older men, that would be Larry Ellison and Rupert Murdoch. You look through the investors, they don't do due diligence. They didn't do patent searches. They didn't look at the evidence. That's why the Silicon Valley investors wouldn't invest, because she wouldn't give them anything. She'd just hand wave and say, we can't reveal all our secrets.
0: And Phyllis Gardner is professor of medicine at Stanford University and uh, in California. That is a truly amazing story, which we will come back to, no doubt, Tegan.
1: It's an absolute roller coaster ride. I can't wait to hear more on it, as, mm. uh, as morbid as that sounds.
0: So let's sit and watch.
1: Yes. Well, it's mailbag time, Norman. And of course, anyone who has a question or a comment that they want to send to the health report should send it to healthreport at abc.net.au. Anne has a question about compounding pharmacies. Anne's taken hormones, including DHEA, which is, I think, uh, a hormone replacement therapy for menopause.
0: So, yeah, DHEA is dehydroepiandrosterone. Essentially, it's a precursor. In other words, it's the raw material for testosterone. And um, there's been... Suggestions for years that this improves your um, libido, it might improve your muscular tone, it may, in other words, it rejuvenates you, is is what people have argued for, although there's virtually no randomised controlled trial evidence that that's what it does.
1: Well, that's what Anne's asking is basically, what's the up-to-date research into it? She's also wondering why doctors don't prescribe these forms of medications more when they're supposed to be tailor-made and safer for each individual.
0: So there's a lot of controversy around the compounding pharmacy industry. When it started, when this boom started, there weren't very many quality controls. And it's still true to a certain extent. You're not absolutely sure what you're getting in your compounding pharmacy compound. So some compounding pharmacies are really excellent, and they've really tried to improve the quality control. But there's no evidence that even in the best compounding pharmacy that having it compounded for you is any better for you than just over-the-counter regular pharmaceutically, pharmaceutical industry produced DHEA. So I think that um, the, the benefits of compounding are um, questionable. And when you put on top of that, that the benefits of DHEA are questionable, you're probably not getting a lot of benefit. There's some benefit from testosterone and testosterone patches, particularly in women, and we can talk about that at another time, uh, perhaps on the tel- on the health report. But in this case, DHEA, there's very little evidence whether it's compounded or not.
1: So for someone like Anne who's been taking it for years, I mean, not giving specific advice to Anne, but there's other women out there in similar situations, I think, and should they just not use them or is it, is it just time to go back to your GP and have a, have a fresh chat about it? It's just
0: time to go back to your GP and have uh, have another conversation about it. What some women are doing is that they're taking HRT, so in other words, estrogen supplements in a compounding Form. In other words, they're getting their oestrogen supplements compounded in a personalized sense. And the argument that some people make is, well, that reduces your chance of breast cancer and the complications of HRT. And there's no evidence of that. Uh, there's no evidence that having it compounded is any better for you or safer for you than taking it in this regular form.
1: And Lara has a question about insomnia, uh, two parts. So firstly, whether there's any updated findings on the impact of anticholinergic drugs on dementia risk. That's a big question mark for me, Norman, that I'd love for you to unpack. And then also whether acceptance and commitment therapy can help treat insomnia.
0: So um, coming back to the first question on anticholinergic drugs. So a lot of drugs act on a chemical, messenger, a chemical messenger system called the cholinergic system so it uses a chemical called acetylcholine to transmit information from one nerve to another and in the brain and there are drugs which act on this system either deliberately or as a side effect of their of their function research done um, particularly in the south of france by an expatriate by an expatriate Australian researcher who's been looking at the onset of dementia over years and others has shown that if you are taking an, an, a drug with anticholinergic effects, it does increase the risk of cognitive decline and maybe dementia as well. And a, a study a couple of years ago has looked at this in terms of the risk of dementia. They looked at nearly 60,000 people um, versus 225,000 controls. So they took, a people, took people with dementia, and then they took people who were similar to them in all respects, except they didn't have dementia, and then they multiplied by four or five in terms of controls, because it's not a perfect study, it's called a case control study. Anyway, they looked at whether or not there was an association with the risk of exposure to these anticholinergic drugs. In other words, were the people with dementia more likely to have taken one of these drugs uh, than the people who were in the controls who didn't have dementia? Short answer was, yes, they were. And the risk depended on age. In other words, if you were 55 years or more. And if you um, and the, the strength of the anticholinergic drugs. In other words, whether they had a strong anticholinergic effect on the body. And what we're talking about here are antidepressants, usually the older style of antidepressants, the tricyclic antidepressants. Um, anti parkinson drugs have strong anticholinergic effects you've got to watch with that because parkinson's itself increases the risk of dementia antipsychotic drugs anti-spasm drugs in the in the bladder and anti and some anti epileptic drugs if they were taking these drugs in the ten years prior to the diagnosis of dementia, there was an increased risk it's not a huge increased risk but it but it's there it's So the risk is anywhere between 30 and 50% higher of developing dementia, if indeed it is cause and effect. And remember what I said about Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease itself is associated with dementia. Depression is associated with dementia. So you've got to untangle a lot of that. But there is pretty good evidence that anticholinergic drugs in general increase the risk of cognitive decline. So here is more evidence on that. And um, what they're suggesting is in this that doctors are advised to be careful in people aged over 55 who are, when they're prescribing drugs, to look for drugs if they've got a strong anticholinergic effect to perhaps think about an alternative. And for example, there are plenty of alternative antidepressants.
1: Well, so we're talking about insomnia with this question. What about acceptance and commitment therapy as an intervention?
0: Acceptance and commitment therapy is a bit like a cognitive behavioural therapy. And... It also helps with mindfulness, and it has been studied in terms of insomnia. And there's been a recent review last year. There was a systematic review of the effects of acceptance and commitment therapy, which shows that it does have an effect on insomnia and can be beneficial. Um, And behavioral therapy and and cognitive behavioral therapy in general does um, help with, uh, that's particularly directed towards insomnia, can help as well. So there are psychotherapies which can help you with your insomnia.
1: Well, that's good to hear.
0: And here's one for you from Bob. Um, A question niggling at me and I can't find an answer. The question is, how less air pollution is there due to the COVID lockdown? You would think it would be quite significant.
1: Well, it's so interesting that Bob asks this question now because just a couple of days ago, there was a report released by the United Nations Meteorological arm, saying that yes, there have been uh, unprecedented improvements in air quality, but it's not enough to halt climate change caused by global warming. So they put out uh, the Air Quality and Climate Bulletin saying that there's been really dramatic decreases in particles. So I guess air pollution is a few different things. There's certain particles, microparticles that can uh, irritate people's respiratory systems, and then there's also certain gases. And microparticles, um, things like sulfur dioxide carbon monoxide nitrogen oxides are all much lower than they were before the microparticles are 40% reduction in that and uh it's similar kind of decreases in other of those harmful gases but yeah it's it's a blip at the moment and there were some interesting little things which which were up so the wildfires in australia here and uh in december 2018 and january 2019 have actually also led to like a, a partial cooling in the atmosphere, which is kind of complicating things as well. But it's not enough to reverse this runaway train that is global warming, unfortunately.
0: Well, there you go. And there's one last question about N95 masks.
1: Yeah. So speaking of microparticles, uh, someone's, uh, Susan's asking, why do N95 masks have a two-year expiry date? Is it something about that papery fabric that deteriorates?
0: Look, there's a whole thing about N95 masks. Is that quite a few have lost their registration from the TGA over the last year or so, because there's been fraud in the N95 market, and if you buy an, in, but they haven't been taken off the market. They've just lost their, their, they've lost their registration, but that's that they still could be being sold without their registration. Um, so in other words, they haven't done a recall of them. So essentially, if you buy an N95 mask that looks pretty flimsy or there's any blurring on the numbers on it um, and it looks pretty odd, um, I'd choose another N95 mask because if it looks as if it can't be an N95 mask, it probably isn't. you just got to be in really careful. Of,
1: in terms of protecting you from COVID, though, that's still going to be better than nothing. Like, we know that the cloth masks that most of us are using in everyday life aren't surgical quality. It would be more if you're in a high-risk Covid environment, or if you're trying to protect yourself from something like bushfire smoke, right?
0: Yeah, that's the situation where it wouldn't work, but it's likely um, to—it it is likely to stop you transmitting it to other people by sixty or seventy percent. But it depends what it's made of. I mean, at least when you buy one of those surgical masks, you know that it's—it's it's got the proper—you know—you know it's approved. But just you've got to be careful with these N95s in terms of what you're buying.
1: Well, that's everything from the mailbag today. Of course, if you've got a question or a comment, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au.
6: And we'll see you next week. See you then.